Okay, here we are back in 2 John. Last week we studied together verses 4 through 7. And in that study we saw how John linked the truth of the gospel with the joy that he was experiencing in knowing that these believers knew, understood, and were firmly committed to this truth. He also linked the truth of the gospel with the love that all true believers have for one another and for the church. We developed John's point of truth, that is, sound doctrine, and love, agape love, being inseparably linked. That these two principles, biblically, are not mutually exclusive, but they are intertwined in such a way that you literally cannot have one without the other. The true Christian fellowship can only exist, and I say true Christian fellowship, can only exist in an environment where there is a shared right understanding of and commitment to the truth of the gospel. Then I left you with the idea that John was emphasizing the importance of understanding and embracing this inseparable link because of what is coming next in his letter, what he was about to communicate next. And that is, I termed it a protective element of agape love. And this was very important for these believers to grasp because of the seriousness of the spiritual danger that they faced. And that the, the practical aspect of this protective element of agape love is the focus of tonight's study. So if you'd like to read along with me, turn to 2 John, and let's read this final passage of this wonderful letter. Beginning in verse 8, John says, Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or Give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Okay, let's look at this verse by verse. So beginning in verse 8, John begins this verse with instruction. And implied in this instruction is warning. He says, watch yourselves. And this word, watch, it, it means to, literally means to look intently, to pay very close attention to, it means to, to beware, to be on guard. So he's instructing them to beware and to be 
on guard. See, he's not, he's not simply giving them some sound but general advice to live careful lives. No, this instruction is a warning directly associated with what he's just reminded us of in verse 7, that there are some among them who are denying the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and actively trying to influence the true believers within the church. And these, John has identified several times before, he calls them deceivers and antichrists. So he's warning them to beware and to be on guard against these antichrists. Now, to be on guard is the antithesis or the exact opposite of complacency. Complacency is an unawareness of actual danger. And it often, it can lead to a false sense of security. If you're not aware of danger, you think that there is no danger and you have this false sense of security. Well, complacency in just about all circumstances in the Christian life is dangerous. But when, it, when it, dealing in matters pertaining to the essentials of the faith, it is extremely dangerous. It is always dangerous, and it's dangerous on multiple levels. You see, these deceivers, they're not just individuals who have, like, a different opinion or a slightly different perspective on minor issues within church life. No, these are, these are people, these are individuals who are actively trying to adversely influence susceptible believers in false teaching pertaining to an essential, an essential element of the Christian faith. So John is issuing a warning here. And I would even, I would term this as a stern warning. If you look at the word that John uses here, watch, it is in the original language, it's a present imperative verb. Now we've been studying all through the the New Testament in our home church studies, present imperative verbs, so we're probably very familiar with what they are, but what it means in this context means that this is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation, but this is a a command. And it also means that John intends for them to be watchful on a continual basis. So it's a command, but it's not a command just to bring it to their attention or or for some one-time action, but he wants them to to, to do this continually. He's calling them to be on guard the way... A soldier is meant to be on guard during his watch. If a a soldier is given, let's say, a six-hour watch, what does he do? If, If he shows up and he looks around and he says, well, everything is nice and secure right now, and then he becomes complacent and he falls asleep, okay, if he's not on high alert for that entire six hours, What can that lead to? It can lead to disaster. It can lead to loss of life. It can lead to serious and a lot of loss of life. Well, even more so in what John is 
is talking about, what, what we're dealing with here. The reality is, is that there have been individuals, there have been whole churches, there have, have even been entire denominations that have been overcome by failing to watch themselves as John is exhorting in this verse. This is a very serious matter. So he says, watch yourselves. Then he goes on to say, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So here John is, is giving the reason why it's so important for his readers to be on guard. He has a concern, and his concern is that they will lose something if they're not. And I want to draw your attention to three elements that I believe comprise what John is concerned may be lost if they do not heed his command. The first thing, I think, has to do with the building of the church. Remember, John his fellow apostles, and many of the believers to whom he's writing are all laborers in spreading the true gospel and advancing or building the church. The the word, the the Greek word, the original word that, that we've translated here to lose, it can also be translated or it carries the meaning of to destroy. So the danger here The danger of being influenced by the Antichrists is not only that the advancement or the continued growth of the church could be hindered, although that is certainly a danger here, but the even greater danger is that what has already been built could be damaged or even destroyed. You see, we need to remember that the enemy is not merely interested in slowing down the growth of the church. His intent, his desire, is to destroy the church. This was a a very real, a clear and present danger within the churches to whom John was writing. And we need to be aware of this fact. That danger is every bit, if not more, present today as it was when John first wrote this letter. So his desire, we we need to be aware of this. His desire, he was writing, of course, directly to them, but the Lord intends us to understand and embrace that also. His desire, John's desire is to see their participation in the spread of the gospel, the building of the church to continue to increase and come to full fruition within their lives. So one element is the, is the ongoing or the continued building of the church. A second element, I think, has to do with eternal rewards. As we go through our lives as we accomplish true kingdom work within our lives. Those things that the Lord has called us specifically to do for the kingdom, we are laying up or accumulating rewards, treasures in heaven. Distraction from this work to any degree 
it diminishes that those those rewards that we're accumulating. And uh, understand when when John when John says this that that you may not lose what we have worked for. Understand. He's not talking about eternal salvation. John is not concerned about their eternal salvation. He knows that is sure. He's exhorting them to be on guard so that they will not lose any of the heavenly rewards that God intends for them, that God has for them, but that they will receive them and receive them in full. This is a common theme through the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gives a similar exhortation to guard against losing that which God intends for each one of us to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me read to you verses 9 through 17. Paul writes, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, So here we see Paul also. He's not concerned here about eternal salvation. We're talking about those eternal rewards. He says, uh, uh, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So you see, this concern for the loss of eternal rewards, it's not unique to John. It's not unique to Paul either. It is from the Lord. It is something that the Lord intends to keep us on his path, staying on his path. Then the third element is our, or their, ongoing relationship with Jesus. So again, I say, John is not concerned here about their eternal salvation. He knows that they're saved, truly saved. He knows that nothing can snatch them from the Father's hand. But at the same time, the enemy at work in and through these antichrists can certainly adversely affect and weaken their relationship with the Lord throughout their lives. John does not want to see that happen. He wants to see them as they continue their walk. 
He wants to see them continually growing closer and closer to the Lord throughout their lives, always living in the fullness of that relationship with him. So John here is exhorting them to watch themselves, to be on guard against the Antichrists, to ensure the fullness of reward in, at at very least, these areas, spreading the gospel and building the church, their own eternal rewards, and, and their ongoing relationship with Jesus during the course of their lives. Okay, now in verse 9, he goes on to say, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So in the first section of this verse, John gives what I'm terming as a general description of the deceiver's and the Antichrists. And this general description emphasizes the importance of being on guard against them. His his description is general in the sense that in in this one verse, he summarizes what he he developed in, in great detail throughout his first letter. He's talking about those who walk in darkness, those who say they do not sin, those who do not love the brethren, those who do not practice righteousness, those who love the world, those who deny the incarnation of God in the man Jesus Christ. Now, this phrasing that he uses here goes on ahead. It can be a little confusing, although I I think that the context of of this phrase renders the meaning quite clear. It gives the imagery of not following Jesus, but forging one's own path to follow rather than following Jesus. John's describing those who have not remained firmly planted in the teachings of and about the Lord Jesus Christ. They go beyond or or outside of what God has revealed in his word, and they add their own views, their own beliefs. And in in doing this, what they're they're doing is, is elevating their own thoughts above what God has revealed in his word. They do not abide. That is, they do not dwell in. They do not remain in. They do not stand firm in the teaching of Christ. Many people still to this day engage in this practice. And quite often they consider themselves to be very progressive in their thinking. They believe and claim to have greater insight than what the Bible gives us, to have greater revelation than God has given in his holy word. What this is, is this is is evidence that they don't know God at all, that they've never known God. Now, 
understand John is in no way here saying that the advancement or the progress in the true understanding of God's word is bad. He's not saying that at all. But any knowledge in theology that does not abide, that is, does not remain in sound doctrine is to be condemned and rejected without compromise. We need to stand firm in that. Remember, our responsibility in in this walk, in our walk, is to stay as close as possible to the Lord Jesus. It's not to try to get out ahead of him or lead where he is not going. So those to whom he's referring here are the deceivers, the antichrists. They do not abide in the true teaching. They don't abide in the teaching of Christ. They've turned away from it. They've turned away from this teaching. They've turned away from the truth about Jesus. They've turned away from the the knowledge or the fact that Jesus is God incarnate. And John then emphatically states that these individuals do not have God. They do not know God. They do not abide in God. And the evidence for this is in what they teach. What are they teaching? They're teaching false doctrine. False doctrine pertaining to an essential of the Christian faith. This this verse also is, is somewhat of a summary of what John wrote in greater detail in his first letter. In 1 John chapter 2, let me read you verses 21 through 24. He says, <clears throat> I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the beginning, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Then the last section of verse 9, back in 2 John, the last section states, what he does is he states the contrast of what he has just said. While those who do not abide in the teaching of Christ do not have God, those who do abide in his teaching, John says, They do have the Father and the Son. So in this section, he's he's describing the true believers, those who have a true relationship with the Lord Jesus. And before we move on, I want to point this out. Don't don't miss this in, in his wording here, has both the Father and the Son. This is another It's subtle, but very significant. It's another statement that is integrally 
uh, linking the Father and the Son. He is once again affirming the deity of the Lord Jesus, which is exactly what the, the Antichrists were attacking. One cannot know God without knowing his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one and only way to God, to true salvation. Now we'll move on to verse 10, where he gives specific instruction regarding how to interact with these antichrists. Verse 10, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So he comes to this very important point in his letter, how to deal with, that is, how to interact with these antichrists. Now, his instruction is focused on any and all of these false teachers who are looking for ways to influence the congregations, the members of the congregations. And this includes what was very common in those days, which is traveling teachers. Traveling teachers who would would travel around and visit the different churches for the purpose of teaching and preaching God's word to these congregations. And as these, these teachers would travel around, hospitality was shown to them. Hospitality both from the church leaders and from the individual members of the church. The church leaders would, would offer the pulpit to these Uh, to these traveling teachers. The elders of the church would allow them to teach at at church services, Bible studies like this, but they they would allow them to teach. And then individual members of the church would oftentimes offer them um, practical assistance, like room and board, food to eat, even financial assistance to help support their ministry. And both aspects of this type of hospitality, they were righteous, they were good when the teachers were true teachers of God's word. But John here is specifically addressing those teachers who would come and who were not true teachers of God's word. They, They came under a false pretense. They claimed to be true teachers of God's word, but they weren't. They were false teachers. And he emphasizes this by his choice of words. He says, those who do not bring this teaching. Well, what teaching is he talking about? The teaching to which he was referring in verse 9. The teaching of Christ. The truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God, that he is God incarnate. So the dividing line between true teachers and false teachers of God's word is what they teach regarding the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And the clear and present danger that these churches were facing was the false teaching that pertained to the deity of Jesus. And the instruction that John gives here is clear. It's crystal clear. 
And it applies to any teacher who denies any of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. His instruction, John's command here, is do not do really what you are accustomed to doing. Okay, so to the, ter- to the church leaders, he's saying, don't allow these false teachers time to teach their false doctrine during Sunday services, Bible studies. Don't even allow them to participate in the services. They're here to spread heresy. Don't give them a foothold. And to the, to the individual members of the church, he's saying, don't, don't support their evil ministry. Don't support it by offering them a place to sleep, by offering them food to eat, money to ease their burden, any type of resource that might further their ministry. You see, the, the phrase that John uses here, do not receive them, it's a negative present imperative verb. This would, this would indicate that there at least might have been some of them, some of this going on at the time. Maybe through lack of, of knowledge, maybe through lack of discernment, but for whatever reason, what John is saying here is that any of these practices that were going on must stop and must stop immediately. Any conversation, any uh, interaction with these teachers must be limited to admonishing them to stop teaching these lies about Jesus that they were teaching, to stop spreading what, they've, what they spread. Now, <clears throat> to some, this might seem harsh, but it's not. John's instructions here, they're emphatic, they're explicit. Do not have anything to do with these false teachers. And what this is doing, like I said, this is, this is not harsh. It's demonstrating the severity of the wrongdoing that these false teachers, these antichrists, are engaged in. This is serious, serious stuff. They are actively attacking the essentials of Christianity, the essential doctrines of Christianity. They're literally trying, attempting to destroy what the Lord Jesus is building. Now, tolerance of religious differences honors and glorifies the Lord and serves to expand the kingdom of God when and only when those differences are of a non-essential nature. When it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith, we must be committed to the truth, to the absolute truth, and ever conscious of the danger that wrong teaching presents. The only appropriate response is to sternly and firmly denunciate false teaching and false teachers. This is the only response that glorifies the Lord and expands 
the kingdom. Receiving these false teachers would be destructive to the church. And it would actually be unloving to the members of the church. It would be a serious act of not protecting those who really need protecting. It's even unloving to to the false teachers themselves. It's accommodating them. It's, It's accommodating their error. It's assisting them in propagating heresy. And, as John points out, it would be taking part in their deception and actively working against God. We don't ever want to be in that position. John really emphasizes and drives this point home in the very next verse. Verse 11, he says, For whoever greets him, meaning whoever greets a false teacher, whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So, what this means is that any type of ministry connection, any type of ministry support for these antichrists, it becomes participation in their evil deeds. These, these individuals that he's describing here, they're apostates. An apostate is someone who has totally abandoned or totally rejected the truth pertaining to any essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Apostates, we're not talking about merely misguided brothers and sisters here, but apostates. And this is any type of support for for these people. It's never acceptable to or allowed by God. John's wording here uh, really describes the severity of what these false teachers are doing. He refers to what they're doing as their wicked works. This word wicked, it means grievous. It means evil. It means depraved. Remember, this is everything that John is writing here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So being inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is a clear indicator of how the Lord himself views these works. What these false teachers are doing deeply grieves the Lord. He sees what they're doing as evil. He sees what they're doing as depraved. We have to keep that in mind. We have to keep that at the forefront of our minds. John's point here is that any type of support, enablement, or encouragement essentially makes one an accomplice to the evil that these false teachers were spreading. Their sin actually becomes your sin. Yeah. Now, another danger of inappropriately interacting with these false teachers is the influence that your actions might have on others around you, even if you're not aware of it. 
for the leaders of the church, I mean, members of the congregation rightfully put their trust in the elders of the church, right? Well, if the elders are allowing and welcoming false teachers into the church for the purpose of teaching the congregation, what that is doing is it's, it's essentially the elders are approving of and agreeing with what is being taught. This can be catastrophic. This can lead younger believers, it can lead them astray. And it can even disorient and confuse those who are more mature within the church. And then for the, for the younger members of the, or the, 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 the less mature members of the congregation, they are often influenced, rightly so, by the older, more mature believers in the church. Well, if they see them, if the, the, the less mature see the more mature wrongfully interacting with these antichrists, what's going to happen? The, the less mature can easily take that as license to do the same. And again, this, this, can, be, this can be catastrophic. Now, conversely, following John's exhortation, what it does is it can, it serves to uh, interrupt or even dismantle the false teacher's lies. Okay, if the, if the elders of the church refuse uh, to, to allow them in and if, uh, refuse to allow them to teach, re, uh, de- depriving them of a platform upon which to teach makes it more difficult for them to continue their evil work. And then for the, for the, the individual members of the church, not providing these false teachers with things like room and board, okay, it sends them on their way. It makes it, it makes it more difficult for them to hang around and continue propagating their lies. It, it blocks or helps to block any further inroads that they might have or might be developing within the community. You see, the, the, the church has, a, has an awesome and sometimes very difficult responsibility of drawing lines when it comes to support, encouragement, and any level of participation in various ministries or with various ministers. We are to exclude any teaching or practice that is out of harmony with the essential doctrines revealed to us in Scripture. We're to have nothing at all to do with them. John is crystal clear on this when he says that even a a warm Christian greeting is an act of taking part in what the Lord views as wicked works. We need to be aware of this also, every bit as much as, as they did. We need to be aware that the propagation of false doctrine within the church is as prolific today as it was among the churches to whom John wrote. If anything, the situation is probably worse today 
than it, were, than it was back then. Yeah. Therefore, the, the importance of us paying attention of, and, and following John's exhortation today is of, at very least, equal, I would say, even greater importance. When it comes to the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, we must be committed to truth above all else. Okay, now in John's closing of this wonderful letter, verses 12 and 13, he says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So John's accomplished his main purpose in writing this letter. That is, encouraging his readers to continue walking in true agape love for one another, exhorting them to guard against false teaching, to guard themselves, to be on watch, and instructing them to reject any and all false teachers who violate any essential doctrine of the Christian faith. But clearly, the apostle has more to say by his own words. He says, though I have much to write to you, he's He doesn't tell us what else he had in mind. Maybe more about the specific topics that he included in his letter. Possibly additional concerns or instructions that he didn't even mention. He doesn't tell us. But what we know is that he he decided not to put any additional thoughts in writing. Now, in this closing, his, John's, pastoral heart, his love for these churches and these believers just really shines through. The the literal translation of this phrase that he uses, face to face, the literal translation for it is mouth to mouth. And this is, it's it's an old Greek idiom And it conveys a very, very special closeness. It's not a a physical, it's not a sexual closeness in any way, but a very, very special closeness among people. In this context, it certainly conveys the very special love that all true believers have for one another. The love that John had for these brothers and sisters. It conveys agape. And this is certainly a a lesson by example for all ministers within the church, not just pastors, but all ministers within the church, of the heartfelt love and commitment that they should have in caring for God's people. 
John expresses his desire to visit each of these congregations in person. Warm, personal, face-to-face fellowship is really a true blessing from God. And it's clearly very important to John. These letters that he wrote, these letters of John, they're wonderful. Just wonderful letters. And I'm sure that they blessed his readers tremendously. But you know, the best written letter isn't the same as that that face-to-face, interpersonal contact. The best written letter can't put an arm around someone's shoulder to console them, to comfort them, to encourage them, or even, when needs be, to rebuke them or exhort them. There really is no substitute for personal, Christian, face-to-face fellowship. This this personal face-to-face fellowship was so important to John that he says it will complete the joy that he has for these fellow believers. And then his final words here, he signs off his letter with, the children of your elect sister greet you. Now, this is a reference to the members, all of the members collectively of the church to which John identified as, as his, his home church. His verbiage here, I believe, links with the very beginning of this letter. In verse 1, he refers to the, the recipient churches, the churches he's writing to, he refers to them as the elect lady and her children. And now here, at the very end of the letter, He refers to the members of his own home church as the children of your elect sister. So these two verses, I think, form an inclusion or bookends to this letter, framing the letter and certainly reflecting the intimate Christian family relationship among all true believers and among all true churches. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of the the real, of the clear and present danger in which we live. Thank you for the stern warning to watch ourselves, to be on guard every step of this walk that you've called us to. Thank you for the grace to follow you every step of the way. And I pray, Father, that you will help each one of us, each one of us to guard ourselves and to guard one another from all of the ploys, all of the traps that the evil one lays out for us. Thank you for it all, Father. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.